Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles and open up to the book of Job today. We're going to be in chapter 1, starting in verse 6, and all the way over to chapter 2, verse 10. And I'll read chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 for us now, as we prepare to hear from Dale South, as he helps us continue in our summer series titled, The Lord Tests. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. As we look at the book of Job, it contains a number of things that most of us, I think, find troubling, things that just don't fit into our understanding of how God works or at least how we think that God should work. And the first five verses of the book introduce readers to a man named Job. And I just want to say, if you think his name is Job, almost everybody, when they first time they read it, that's what they think. We, we, we say his name is Job, uh, not Job. But I always got Steve Job, Steve Jobs mixed up anyway, so... Um, we're told that Job had 10 children. He had seven sons, a perfect number. He had three daughters, another great number. And Job was really, really wealthy. And in addition to having his family and having all of his material blessings, Job is described as a man who is blameless and upright, one who feared God and who turned away from evil. So, the book of Job has as many similarities as we look at it, I think, to a courtroom drama. And in the beginning of this courtroom drama, it seems like Job is the defendant. Job is going to be on trial, and they're going to try to judge whether or not he will remain faithful to the Lord in times of calamity and in times of, of suffering that he's going to be having to undergo. And then we're introduced to another character, the Satan, literally, it's always an article in front of it, which really means the adversary. And he's also got some other names in the scripture, same bad, evil guy. Some, he's the accuser. He's the deceiver. He's the devil. And Satan in this courtroom drama takes on the role of sort of the, the prosecutor, the, the accusing role. And then we're going to be introduced to some of Job's friends who will play the role of witnesses in the case. And as the story develops, though, it, it just does not fit into our conventional wisdom and normal ways of thinking about where tests and calamities actually come from. We notice Satan doesn't approach the Lord and, and, and ask him, hey, what do you think about let me take a whack at Job? Uh, to, to, to our surprise here, sometimes to our dismay, God, the Lord, takes the initiative and he says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Why don't you take a whack at him? And it, it just doesn't fit into our categories that the Lord not only allowed Satan to test Job, to inflict suffering of great magnitude upon him and his family, but God initiated it. God suggested it. It was God's idea in the first place. But the Lord goes on to say, 
Job is a great man. There's none like him on all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and he turns away from evil. So it's very clear that God is not judging or punishing Job for any wrongdoing that Job has done because God himself has called him blameless. God did not unleash Satan on Job because of anything Job had done wrong. It's just the opposite, it seems. God is having Job tested because Job was so exceptionally good. He was righteous. Some of you cynics are out there saying, see, I told you, no good deed goes unpunished. But, but that's not what we're having here. Job is not really going to end up being the only defendant or the only one on trial. Like Shakespeare sometimes had a play within a play, the book of Job sort of has a trial within a trial. Satan, the adversary prosecutor, he accuses both Job and God in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And he basically tells God, he said, of course Job trusts you. It's easy to trust you when you have a perfect family. It's easy to trust you when you're filthy rich and when everybody in your family is healthy. But Job trusts you because you, God, you have bribed him to trust you. You take away the bribe, stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan's ultimate goal was not just to hurt Job and his family. Satan intended to use Job's trial to put God on trial. He wanted to put God under the charge that God could not be trusted. He's been doing that since the beginning, and he continues to do that today. And the Lord responded to Job. He says, or to, to Satan, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So in, the, in this test, everything but Job's body was fair game. Uh, Satan could tear down Job's trust in any other way that he could. Once again, we see human attackers. We see natural disasters Attacked Job's family, attacked Job's wealth. Job lost all of his livestock. All of his 10 children were, were killed. And this just does not fit in with our normal understanding of a just and loving God about how he is supposed to work when he's in charge. Even if the words don't cross our lips in our hearts, we can hardly help asking why would an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God allow Satan to do this? This is a big question in philosophy called theodicy. Why do, basically, why do bad things happen to good people? If God is all-loving and all-good and all-powerful, then why does evil exist? Job speaks to this challenge. You see, we, we can easily find ourselves swayed by Satan's accusatory skill as we wonder. So look at Job, Job being a righteous guy. Is it safe to trust a God who would do that? Is that really the kind of God I want to worship? In the trial of Job, the Lord God who, who suggested the suffering in the first place and he could have prevented it at any moment, is himself on trial. 
And Job's response was remarkable to the excruciating losses he had experienced. Job rose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head, which are demonstrations of grief and mourning. And in his lament, Job proceeded to fall on the ground and he worshiped God. And verse 22 lets us know that in this case, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job didn't speak out against God for what God had allowed to happen, for what God had actually instigated. The adversary, the accuser, then comes back for round two. It's deja vu. As he says, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And this time, Satan argues that that Job would curse God if God would only allow Satan to actually physically attack him this time, skin for skin. This time, though, the Lord allowed it. He said, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So the first test, we see God say, don't stretch out your hand against him. But now in the second test, God said, he's in your hand. Just don't take his life. God allowed Satan to take Job through terrible physical pain so long as he didn't kill him. Now, the the physical pain and the emotional pain was so bad that Job simply wanted to die. I would imagine that among a group of this side, some of you have been in that place. And yet Job did not curse God. He did, however, curse the day that he was born. And he did ask, why was I ever born? Why did I not die at birth? But to Job's credit, he didn't give in to the thought that death would be a relief from his anguish and from his misery. Instead, Job continued to trust God, even though the evidence of his own experience called into question whether God was worthy of his trust. A while back, Pastor Travis uh, gave a sermon and he shared a quote about the Babylonian exile. And the quote was, to be in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar is not to be out of the hand of God. And here we have Job in the hand of Satan. It's as if Job is trusting to be in the hand of Satan is not to be out of the hand of God. Job's uh, perseverance was no thanks to his wife. She agreed that Job would have been better off dead. He didn't complain against God, but I could almost imagine him saying, couldn't you have left one of my children and taken her? Um, (laughs) But she said, curse God and die. And Job responded with a key verse in the book of Job and in all the Bible. And he asked the question, shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? And all this, though, verse 10 tells us Job did not sin with his lips. And Job 13, 15 is another key verse that reveals Job's inner conflict with his words, these words that we see in 2.10. He's not saying anything against God, 
but he really wants to say something for himself. He really wants to argue his case. He says, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This word hope in the, in the Hebrew, just like in English, has the idea of, of wanting something to happen. It's to wish for something to happen. But in Hebrew, hope is much deeper. It goes beyond wishful thinking. It also means to wait. And I, I love when we talk about hope, I just love the Spanish word esperar, from which we get the word esperanza, our hope, because it also means I hope, but it also means I will wait. It means to hope and to wait. It's the same thing here in the Hebrew. So it means, Job is saying, even if God takes my life, I will hope in him. I will wait for God to do what is right, even if it doesn't occur in my lifetime for me to see it. As we get to our tools for testing, each week we've been trying to have a tool for testing. Hope is a really good tool for testing. Not just wishful thinking, but waiting for God and trusting God to do what is right, especially in times when all we can see is wrong. Now, right after declaring his hope and his trust in the Lord, Job also said, yet will I argue to his face. Now, even though Job didn't accuse God of wrongdoing, he desperately wanted to justify his own righteousness. He wanted to argue that he did not done anything to deserve such suffering. In this courtroom drama, then we find three of Job's friends went to him to try to comfort him. And they actually kind of serve as witnesses in Job's trial, but they actually give false testimony against God and they give false testimony about Job. They had no evidence other than Job's suffering, and yet his friends concluded that for Job to be so much in so much calamity and so much pain and suffering, Job must have had some sort of sin that he was hiding away in his life. He must have done something that really ticked God off. And at that point, a good defense attorney would have jumped up and objected, hey, conjecture, hearsay. But in the end, Job does get his opportunity to plead his case, to try to justify himself before God. And when Job argues for his innocence, God never corrects Job. God never says, Job, you're wrong. God, God, God never says anything to correct him uh, about the suffering and calamity that was sent upon him. God doesn't even get angry with him for asking the questions and trying to present his case before God. But when Job argues for his innocence, God, God does communicate a couple of things I believe we need to hear and let's sink in that will help us in our times of suffering. And, and that is first in Job chapter 40, verse 8. You might want to make a note of that one. God asked Job this question. God says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? so that you may be right. God says, are you going to join the accuser side of things on this just so that you make yourself feel more righteous? Because when we justify our own innocence as a reason for why God should not send calamity or allow suffering to come into our lives, we end up putting God's actions and God's justice on trial. We condemn him that we may be shown to be in the right. The second thing I believe God communicates as he gives this lengthy list of questions to Job. 
just has them listen to question after question to drive home a point. And the final point of that is, Job, I'm not angry with you. and I'm not going to be giving you all the answers that you want to hear. But you need to know you just simply do not know everything that I know. And if you did know everything that I know, you would never question my justice. You would never question my power. And you would never question my love. After that, we find Job's response in Job 42.3, another good one to note. Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And once again, Job worshiped the Lord God, the Lord who had sent suffering and calamity into his life. And after that, the Lord blessed Job with more children and wealth beyond even what he had before. You see, as we look at the book of Job, I believe God knew every generation of human beings was, was going to have a hard time understanding, testing, and suffering in relation to God's power and his love. The, the book of Job addresses two mistaken tendencies we have as we try to reconcile both God's love and power with our own suffering. And the first one is that like Job, you and I have a tendency to want to justify ourselves. And even if we don't say it, we're thinking something like, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I don't deserve to have this much bad happening to me. Why is it so much on me? <coughs> the second thing that is a mistaken concept we learn from Job's friends that is, that when something has, bad happens to us, or something bad happens to someone else, our first reaction is often to be suspicious, to think this is possibly a repayment for something wrong that they've done, rather than seeing it as a part of God's bigger plan, as an all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God. You see, God knew that Job had not done anything wrong. But in their minds, Job's friends were absolutely certain that he had done something wrong. And Job's friends were mistaken about God and they were mistaken about Job and God rebuked them for speaking things about both of them that simply were not true. In, in both of those errors, trying to justify ourselves, thinking that we don't deserve what we're getting because we're too good to get what we're getting bad, and also for being suspicious that because somebody's undergoing suffering that maybe they've got some underlying sin or there's something beneath there that's hidden that's the cause of this. In both of those cases, we unknowingly behave as practical Hindus and Buddhists rather than gospel-centered followers of Jesus. See, Hindus and Buddhists believe in a concept called karma. It's very popular in culture. Karma is a cause and effect sort of reward-punishment cycle that teaches that what happens to a person happens because of their actions. In other words, karma suggests that if, if something good happens to you, it must be because you've done something good. You're just getting your return. If something bad happens to you, you must have done something bad, and you're just getting back what you need to have returned to you. We see that that kind of mentality is even in the Scriptures as a mistaken belief. In John chapter 9, when Jesus was, uh, had healed a man who had been born blind, 
his disciples, disciples assume that the man was blind because of somebody's sin. And they say, whose sin was it? This man's or his parents? And Jesus corrected them with a, with a beautiful line for us. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The big idea that I've tried to extract from all of this this morning is that suffering doesn't always mean that we've done something wrong. And it never, ever means that God has done something wrong. Jesus was truly blameless, yet he suffered the physical pain and the social shame of the cross. Even more than that physical and social pain, he suffered the the weight of your sin and my sin and the sin of the world of all generations. And after Jesus was crucified on that cross, nearly everyone who did not know him assumed God must have judged him for having done something terribly wrong. People mistakenly assumed Jesus was cursed for sins he had committed, which is an era of karma thinking. And we know Jesus became a curse for us because of our sin, the gospel of Jesus' grace. You see, Job was exceptionally good. Jesus was perfectly good. Neither Job nor Jesus lived his life for his own sake, but for the perfect plan of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-loving God. And both Jesus and Job teach us that hoping, waiting for God to do what is right is a great tool for testing. In both the book of Job and Jesus' grace strongly oppose the mistaken idea of karma. The Bible says that when we turn from our self-ruled living and we trust Jesus as the ruler of our lives, we are justified. It's a theological word, justified before God. He sees us then as blameless because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That means We don't need to justify ourselves anymore because Jesus has already done that for us. Are you still insisting on justifying yourself this morning? Or have you trusted and confessed Jesus as the justifier of your life? If not, I will pray that you hear and receive the message of the gospel of Jesus' grace. But how might our understanding of suffering and the way we respond to it change if we could get over the idea that we have to justify ourselves? And if we could get over the idea that because somebody's suffering, somebody needs to be accused. We either accuse the person who's suffering or we accuse God of wrongdoing when sometimes it's just that the works of God might be put on display in that situation. I know some of you are probably suffering here this morning, and a number of us have very dear friends that are suffering beyond our imaginations right now. But when we can make that switch beyond justifying, beyond accusing, to say, Lord, I will hope in you. When we make that shift, we can say with Job, I don't understand this suffering. But Lord, I don't know what you know. 
so I trust you. Then we can say with Job, shall I receive good things from God but not receive evil with it? We can then say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and His community. Have a blessed day.